Acts chapter 7, 39 through 43. Acts 7, 39 through 43. And all of this is on our website if you haven't been following along. And we're in the middle of Stephen's sermon when he, that he preached to the Jewish leadership, that being the Sanhedrin. And there is a lot of theology in Acts 7. And we've been exploring that. Brian. Please read Acts 7, 39-43 for us. Our fathers were unwilling to be obedient to him, but repudiated him, and in their hearts turned back to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make for us gods who will go before us. For this Moses who led us out of the land of Egypt, we don't, we don't know what happened to him. At that time, they made a calf and brought a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away and delivered them up to serve the host of heaven. As it is written in the book of the prophets, it was not to me that you offered victims and sacrifices 40 years in the wilderness, was it? O house of Israel, you also took along the tabernacle of Moloch and the star of the god Ramphah. The images which you made to worship, I also will remove you beyond Babylon. Thank you. Could you pray for our time, Brian? We thank you, Lord, for this time together as we learn your word, study your word, draw closer and nearer to you, God, through the learning of your word. We pray, uh, Father, for uh, Bob's voice. We pray for our congregation and everyone in it. We pray, Lord, that... uh, as we move forward in the days ahead, that you strengthen us and as we draw near to you. It's in your son's name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay, we did talk about Acts 7.39 on our last PowerPoint a few weeks ago. And uh, but I'm going to go back over it because it really kind of pulls all this together. But Acts 7.39... Nine, I'm using the ESV. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside, and in their hearts, they turned to Egypt. Okay? So, we have a theme of God visiting. Remember visitation? Okay? So, when God sent Moses... That was his visitation of Israel. The first time they thrust him aside. So he spends 40 years, Midian, and then we have the burning bush and Moses being sent in to bring Israel out. Second time. Second visitation. And this phrase, thrust him aside, is exactly the same in the Greek as Acts 7.27. So this is emphasizing Israel's consistent rebellion. God sends prophets and speaks to them, but they don't listen. They thrust aside God's messengers. And so Moses was thrust aside. Just so you know, the reason we're doing this, and Stephen saying what he is, is to bring these people face to face with Christ. Christ is the greater Moses, and God sent his own son. And here we'll find out that they also reject Christ. They rejected the messenger. They refused to obey him, thrust him aside. And the word for refused in the Greek is literally did not will. We don't want this. We don't want this. 
in their hearts here. Notice that in their hearts. This shows where apostasy starts. I have witnessed in my lifetime literal apostasy. I've seen people, now I believe God preserves all his own, but there are people that went out from biblical Christianity. I got a letter or an email from a former pastor and one of our members at that time was witnessing to him and shared with him an article I wrote on apostasy. And I got an email from the guy and he said, well, I know your member is well-intentioned. Now, this guy we used to know was a pastor. He said, but don't waste your time. I've renounced Christ. And since I renounced Christ, my life has done nothing but get better. I've got a beautiful family. I've made a lot of money. I'm a very happy man. And I'm not going to go back to Christ. I don't want to hear about it. And I know your member is well-intentioned, but tell him not to waste his time. I'm very happy without Christ. To me, that's apostasy. Since then, I've run into some others. And you know what an apostate will say? Don't even pray for me. I don't want you to. Eric, you got a mic? Could you look up Ezekiel 20? eight and nine and feel free to comment this is ezekiel 20 eight through nine it says but they rebelled against me and were not willing to listen to me none of them cast away the detestable things their eyes feasted on nor did they forsake the idols of egypt then i said i would pour out my wrath upon them and send my anger against them in the midst of the land of egypt but I acted for the sake of my name, that it should not be profaned in the sight of the nations among whom they lived, in whose sight I made myself known to them and bringing them out of the land of Egypt. Wow, yeah, isn't it beautiful that here God acts not because of who they are, but for the sake of his name. Amen. Amen. I wrote an article, and it ended up being a, a paper. It was my master's thesis for seminary, and we had to write an article that covered all of the doctrines of systematic theology from the standpoint of one integrating motif. So it was very difficult. It had to cover every doctrine important in systematic theology but from one perspective. And they said, don't do something everybody else does. We're tired of reading about that. Okay, like you can say the grace of God. That's good, but try something else. So my motif was honoring God and that God acts in history, saving a remnant in order to bring honor and glory Anyhow, I wrote that, and it came out fantastic. One of my we had two professors read these. Decide if you were fit to graduate, and one of them said it was the best he'd ever read. So we published it. It's on CIC, called "Honoring God." So that passage that Eric read shows God acting for the sake of his name. Now, God is raising up from amongst Jews and Gentiles a remnant of people who will believe him and obey him and live for him for the sake of his name. Look at the term turned. 
strafo in the Greek is a term used in the New Testament sometimes for conversion, to turn to God. Apostasy is reverse conversion, going backwards. Eric and I contended with the head of the seminary when Eric was there because there was a teacher who was emergent. I mentioned him in my book, actually, who was promoting all things emergent. And we contended with that professor that this guy wasn't teaching biblical Christianity. Remember that? Yeah. Well, Harry, tell us. Now, that guy that we objected to became an apostate. He did. His name was Laron Schultz. And uh, what he was teaching in his systematic theology class, I'll just give you one example. You know you're in trouble when they make you buy the book that they wrote, right? That's the text for the class. Well, I'm like, oh, boy, here we go. So we're learning about um, what happens to you after you die. That's the subject. And there's uh, different views on what happens to the body of a Christian after they die. Well, he holds to a modest position, meaning that there can be no separation of body and soul. Well, it's, that's heretical. Second Corinthians 5.8 says to be absent from the bodies, to be present with the Lord. So I'm looking for the exegetical evidence from the scriptures of his view. He doesn't have any. In fact, he appeals to some uh, real lame scientific study that was done, which doesn't even prove his case. And so I realized this guy isn't, doesn't even hold the scriptures as the final authority. So um, I was an airline pilot at the time. I'd heard Bob, and I used to drive a car from the airport, and I to hear him on the radio... My antenna had rusted off. It was an airport car. Well, it would be cold, and I'd have to put my finger on top of the antenna to hear him. And then I'd have to sit on my hand for a while to warm up my hand, right? But I thought, this guy understands the emerging church. I bet he would come with me, and we could confront this apostasy in the seminary. So Bob and I went in there, and they wouldn't listen. They just don't care. And they pulled out their file cabinet theology where they say, well, these are the things we believe. Well, it's not what your professor is teaching. Well, long story short... They looked at me and basically mocked me as the modern Martin Luther. But six months ago, I was given an article from uh, many people known here, Ryan Habenaugh. And Laron Schultz left to Norway a few years back, and there was an article about how he's an atheist now. Yeah. So here, Bethel Seminary. He's an apostate. He was an apostate. They had an a atheist teaching systematic theology in the Baptist General Conference. That's what Bethel Seminary allowed. I know. Yeah. And they thought there was something wrong with us. Yeah, exactly. Because we wanted the truth. Now, the term strafo is also used in Matthew 18.3. Truly, I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. So in Acts 7.39, it's used for turning to Egypt. In Acts 8, or Matthew 18.3, it's used for turning to God. I think we could preach a sermon out of this. Who are you going to turn to? To God or to Egypt? I remember that I was going to answer any questions that anybody had from that video. Did anybody bring questions with them from the video? I'm the host of heaven. Okay. Either it was real clear or real muddy. I think it was clear. Yes, hold on. You made a pretty big statement last week, and you said that in those days... An individual had to literally move to Israel, correct, and be a proselyte well, you in had order to, to be saved? Agree to keep the law. So you have, even if you're living somewhere else, you're going to have to go there for the feasts. Okay, the the temple services and everything that needed to happen were in national Israel. So the uh, physicality, but the physicality of Israel itself, the geog geography of Israel. No, you had to submit to the law. But the law would require you 
at least to go up for the pilgrim fees. Because the rest of the nations were under the stoichia, were not under the protection of the Lord. That's what it says. Yeah, but Israel was, though. So you had to go to Israel to be protected. You, know? you, had, to, you had to be a proselyte. Eric, do you want to comment on that? Did you see the video? I did. I did. What do you think of that idea? Yeah, I think you're exactly right. You know, here, um, in fact, we'll be talking about the Day of Atonement today and how Christ fulfills that. And there was atonement found in Israel. And on the one hand, you have the sacrificial system. According to Hebrews 10.4, the blood of bulls and goats never really did provide atonement. They couldn't really remove sin. So why are they offering all of these animals? Well, they're doing it trusting that atonement comes from Yahweh. So the average Jew who was saved in Israel didn't believe that the goat itself would remove their sins, but it was a means that God had provided, and they were trusting Yahweh for the remission of sins. So in Leviticus 17.11, it says atonement is from Yahweh. Now, if you're living outside of this system, you have to come to Israel to find atonement. And so that's why even the proselytes, as Bob said, are really compelled by the law itself. If they're going to be obedient... They have to abide by these different feasts. Then they have to come up and serve the Lord. And the prophets, of course, foretold this day that that would happen on a universal basis. But that's, of course, in the millennial kingdom. But salvation is only found through atonement in Yahweh. Now, are you saved just because you do a feast? No. But if you're saved by faith alone, you obey. And that's the point. So if you never obey any of the feasts, it's evident that you don't really believe that Yahweh saves. And so that's why these proselytes had to go up to Jerusalem, if they really believed, they yes. would come. Yeah. And Eric, you've mentioned him before. Talk about the torn curtain. Oh, yeah, the torn curtain. When Jesus dies, remember, the curtain tears. And, of course, that separated, I believe, the holy place from the holy of holies. And it's the holy of holies where once a year the high priest would make atonement. Well, when that temple veil tears, it really symbolizes now this salvation isn't locked away in Israel. It's open for all. All who come to Messiah can have atonement and the forgiveness of sins. That's the big imagery now. So the new covenant is superior. It's not locked away once a year behind a curtain for one man to see. It's now available to all, Jews and Gentiles alike. See, in America, we don't think of Jews and Gentiles. We don't think that way. But it's revolutionary in the grand scheme of history. Salvation to the Gentiles, too. That's what's so shocking. Amen. I was going through your uh, the slides from your your sermon, your video, and uh, trying to connect the dots here. And uh, first, you talk about the sons of God in slide 13, and then you say the sons of God are the heavenly council, the host of heaven. And then later, in slide 13, you talk about the host of heaven, which are wicked beings. Not all, not all of them are wicked. Okay, well, that was, that was my first question, because, it's, it's, because there is a range of meaning in this host of heaven. Actually, I have all of them here. Yeah. For example, um, in Luke, when Messiah is coming, it says... There was praise yes. in the heavenly host. Right. Same idea. Yeah. This would be the good ones. It didn't right, fall. Right. Well, that was that was part of my question. It seems like it's used in a range of meanings. Sometimes but it, yeah, good, sometimes I, bad. I have all of the ones I right here. Right. And I went through them again yesterday. I only found one where I thought it meant stars, literally. That probably was uh, Isaiah 34.4. Yeah. I mean, that clearly is talking about, I think, the... the I have here one, two, three, four. Right. Six, seven. Right. Eleven, twelve. I think I had 17 of them, but only one had to be stars. Yeah. Well, and and I was just looking at a uh, website called Precept Austin, which is a very conservative website, and just... In February, they'd come out with an update on their host of heaven, and their conclusion, you know, is that there's basically two categories. Sometimes it is the stars, the moon, and so forth. Sometimes, Only once. Yeah. One time it is. Well, possibly. Possibly more than that. Depends on how you look at it. But, but then also, 
even when it's talking about beings, heavenly beings, sometimes they are good and sometimes not good. Right. So, yeah, I, I don't think you disagree with their... That's exactly right. Yeah. That's yeah. when I would conclude from this. Right. From my range of meaning. Now, we were particularly interested, Deuteronomy 4.19 and 32.8. Yeah. And then Job 1 and... Uh, see, in Job 1, you have the sons of God, right? Right. Job 1.6. Right. Yeah. And uh, <clears throat> that, I found it very interesting. I was, I was just looking at, you know, what, what John MacArthur had to say about that. And there, if that's the sons of God are, are angels, and I think they are, but what kind of angels are they? And his take on it, his comment was at the end, he says, like a Judas among the apostles, Satan's was came with the angels. So he so, thinks they're all good. And he thinks they're good except for Satan. Yeah. But he's wrong. <laughs> okay, okay. Because uh, I guess you're pretty plain on that. Well, he is. I don't know if he understands the Deuteronomy 32:8 and all of this. But if you look at 1 Kings 22:19. The hosts of heaven are there, okay? But there is a spirit that's with them that comes and offers to be a lying spirit in the mouth of the prophets. Yeah, one. It's the one spirit. Oh, so you say that's just Satan each time? Well, he's saying the Why would there be only one The majority amongst of them, them are probably, were probably good, good angels. We don't know that. No. It doesn't but say. We don't know the opposite. But we do know the pagan nations were allotted under the host of heaven. Yeah. yeah. There was... It says that, literally. Yeah. yeah. The, the other, if I could just mention one passage, um, you've had this in your writings, Bob, is Isaiah 24, 21, where it says, On that day, talking about the day of the Lord, Yahweh will punish the host of heaven in heaven. And it's literally the heights of the heights in heaven. Yeah. Well, he's obviously not going to punish the good angels. He's going to punish the wicked ones. And right. So this implies that there right. is a plurality of them. Yeah, you, you can't say there's only one. Yeah. So, um, and then in, even in Matthew 25, 41, Jesus says, <laughs> who have rebelled against him, they're going to go to the lake of fire, which was prepared for the devil and his angels, plural. You know, so well, there definitely a, are yeah, yep. fallen angels that are going to be punished and all that. The question is, what is it talking about here? Right. The link between the sons of God and, and the host of heaven. Right. And what, now this is just my simple reading of the scripture, but it seems strange that a title, Sons of God, which is a good title, that God is so careful how he names things throughout the Bible, calls things what they are, and uh, like with Jacob, you know, and when first he was a conniver and a schemer, and then when he changed, his name changed. And even, and even Satan was called Satan. But originally, if he was Lucifer, it was a, like a light bringer, and then he became an accuser. So God is very careful to name things what they are. And it seems strange that in Job 1.6 that God would inspire the author to call wicked evil angels Sons of God. They're not all wicked and evil. Well, that's what are they called in Genesis six? What's well, that's a question? Yeah, that's a, no. That's a big well, no, it's a statement. <laughs> it was sons of God who did evil in Genesis six. Well, that's whatever you call it, they did evil because it led to the flood. So you have the, plural, the sons of God. Sons of God. But who were the sons of God? That's the question. I mean, the Well, why would they be something different there than they are in Job 1? Well, maybe they're both different. I mean, that's the point. Also, that we don't even know what the Bible means? Yeah, we do. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Genesis 1, Genesis 6, sons of God do evil, whatever they are. I think it's helpful, too, to think when we're talking about the sons of God, the, the term in Hebrew, B'nai Elohim, the, 
sons of God has to do not with the fact that they are like God in his incommunicable attributes, but the reason why I think God ordained his spokesmen to refer to them as the sons of God is not because of their moral qualities, it's because of their location. They inhabit the spiritual realm. And so because they inhabit the spiritual realm, and again, the sons of God would incorporate both the good angels and the wicked angels, what I would call demons. But the reason they're called as such is because they inhabit the location that God dwells in. Right now, you and I cannot see that realm. But when we die and we have separation of body and soul, then we go to that realm, and now we can partake in it. And when we're in our resurrected body, then we can see that realm. So God has rulers in the heavenly realm, his divine counsel that he's sovereign over, Mm -hmm. and he has rulers on the earthly realm, mankind, that he's sovereign over. Now, just as mankind rebelled against God, so did the, those who inhabited the spiritual realm. So I think it's helpful to think not that they're miniature gods, but the reason they're called that is because of the location. They share the same location that Yahweh does in the spiritual yeah. realm. So I think, yeah. that, does that help? All the sons of God. There are a whole bunch of scriptures that talk about sons of God in a positive, they're positive ways. But not in Genesis 6. Yeah, not in Genesis 6. Well. No way is that positive. Well, maybe. Well, if it's positive, why was the flood? It was good that the sons of God came in to the daughters of men. That was good. Well, I think there's enough. Here's my bottom line. Right. I don't think we're going to agree on this, but I think the bottom line is this. I think there's enough ambiguity in some of this that we can't come down absolutely dogmatically and say, we know for sure this is the way it is. Because there's a lot of very good theologians. So quote somebody who thinks that what happened in Genesis 6 was good and pleasing to God. No, I can't. Nobody. But I can can tell you people who don't think that sons of God is referring to fallen angels there. Well, they can think what they want, but whatever (laughs) happened was evil. Yes, I agree with that. All right. So we have sons of God doing evil. We can agree on that. All right, that's fine. Let's go to verse 40. Hey, my voice is coming back. No, let's go to... Uh, I got to get a little charged up. Get my voice. <laughs> Thank you, Norm. No, that's good. You're, this is why we're here, to look to, at this stuff. Now, let's look at how Stephen and Luke's... Uh, account of Stephen's address uses the phrase our fathers in order to understand the Jewish scriptures you have to understand the idea of corporate solidarity when Jesus says something like fill up the guilt of your fathers you see corporate solidarity our fathers okay there's a oneness with that. And it can be good, and it can be bad. Now, here's how the phrase, our fathers, is used in Acts 7, Stephen's speech. Our fathers is used in Acts 7, 12. Stephen was Jewish when Jacob heard there was great in Egypt, he sent our fathers, their meaning the patriarchs. Acts 7.19, it was he who took shrewd advantage of our fathers, mistreated our fathers. Acts 7.38, this is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness together with the angel who was speaking to him on Mount Sinai, and who was with our fathers. 739, our fathers were unwilling to be obedient. So we go along here at 744, our fathers had the tabernacle. I will have a PowerPoint presentation about the house of God. At 745, <laughs> Our fathers brought it with Joshua upon dispossessing the nations. So as 
Stephen speaks to the Sanhedrin, he is speaking as one with Israel, our fathers. This is what they did. And Stephen will own it. But when we get to Acts 7, 51 and 52, it changes. By the way, I just was looking at my commentaries. The scholars do see this. I'm not the only one. Eric, could you read Acts 7, 51 and 52? Yes. Stephen says, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Do you want me to continue to verse 52? Yeah. Uh, which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute, and they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered? You have received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Yes, wow. Now, this is amazing. I love the Bible. I love reading. You learn theology by reading. So Stephen owns corporate guilt. I own this. It was our fathers who wouldn't listen to Moses. It was our fathers who made the golden calf. It was our fathers who wouldn't listen at Sinai and rejected Moses. Yes, we're guilty. Me too, Stephen. But then God sent his Messiah and they mistreated him just like they did Moses. Jesus is the greater Moses. And so Stephen had repented. Stephen had come to Christ. And so when it came to the rejection of Messiah, his terminology changes. Now it's your fathers. If you're going to reject Christ, you're on your own if you reject Christ. Do you see that? So here's the point. The only way to escape from this history of apostasy is to believe in Christ. There's no other way out. People object to the idea of corporate guilt in Adam. Eric was preaching on that. In Adam, all die. In Christ, all are made alive. Why object? Because God gave us a way out. We don't have to stay in our guilt. We don't have to own all the rebellion and wickedness. We confess it and then ask God to forgive us. Dear Lord, forgive me. I'm as guilty as any other sinner. I've sinned against God and in your sight. Make me your servant. Prodigal son, dear Jesus, forgive me. Wash away my sins. That's how we change. And we become one with the people of faith. Corporate solidarity. I love this. I love the gospel. And we see that here. We got to get out. If we're under the guilt of Adam, we've got to get out. We've got to come to Christ. Look at this analogy that we find. You have it probably in your outline. Moses Christ analogy. See, his audience had a real high view of Moses. And uh, so Stephen talks about Moses. Now they thrust him aside twice. The man rejected by the people becomes ruler and deliverer. You can look at it. I don't have enough voice to go back through. But I think that shows you the brilliance of Luke Acts and how God speaks to us. Moses was a mediator. He gave words of life and he was rejected. The point is when they rejected Jesus they did the same thing they had done to Moses. I saw this 
years ago, when I kind of was studying an overview of Luke Acts when I was preaching through Luke. The whole point is, who's going to be our fathers? The people like Daniel, like Ezra, like David, like Nehemiah, who came to God, repented, are we going to be like the ones who killed the prophets? Where this is going, Stephen is going to say to the Sanhedrin, you are like the ones who killed the prophets. What happened when he said that? They killed him. Here's the irony. Stephen was a prophet to them. And they killed him. They can't stand to hear it. See, I know that. I know that with my whole heart. So when I get these emails from readers, and I don't know if they're Christian, I go to the gospel. Because either they'll say amen or they'll get mad at me. And if they get mad, they'll just go somewhere else. Problem solved. Sorry to say that, but I can't fix that. But if they want to hear the gospel, they get all excited. Yes. Yeah, it's funny. These guys go down the street and go witnessing. Is that um, you come up to a Christian up on the street, and they get all offended when you give them the gospel. And these are guys who are professing Christians. They get all upset when they hear the gospel. Oh, I already know that. I already accepted Christ. Blah, blah, blah. I don't want to hear that. But then you find once in a while, you find the guy who really is Christian. They want to talk about the gospel, and they get all excited about it, and they'll share with you and they'll be all excited just to share with it. You can know who the real Christian is yeah. because when you give the gospel, the quote-unquote Christian who gets offended is not really saved. But the guy who likes talking about the gospel, he's the one saved. He'll always be excited. Oh, yeah. I know. I found that in seminary. I would get in class and dispute with teachers if they were wrong. I like that one. After class, four or five people come. Oh, I want to get to know you. That's how I met Ryan Havana. Because some guy in class was denying the deity of Christ. And we were studying Hebrews, and this guy said, the author of Hebrews misquoted the Bible and applied it to the deity of Christ. It doesn't say that Christ isn't really God. And this was Dr. Brooks, who's kind of mellow. Well, and I go, ah! <laughs> And I rebuked the guy, kind of strongly, I think. I was young back then. I hadn't mellowed out with age. And I rebuked the guy. And then I felt bad because I rebuked him in front of the whole class, although he denied Christ for the whole class. I went and found him at lunch. And I said, well, I should have just talked to you at lunch. I'm sorry. I, you know, I made you look bad in front of the whole class. And he says, oh, that's okay. I don't believe in the deity of Christ. He had grown up in a Christian home. This whole thing had gone seeker sensitive. You could sit in church, never worried about being convicted of sin or told to repent or to come to Christ. So he said, I, that's okay. You're right. I don't believe in the deity of Christ. I said, okay. Well, let me explain why you should. We had a conversation. The next time I was in that class, right next to me is Ryan Habana. And he said, uh, I got to get to know you. That was really cool what you said to that guy. And he became one of our pastors. And he just came back with some brothers here from Israel. And he became a very good friend. And I had a golf shirt on. He said, are you a golfer too? Yeah. Wow. <laughs> well... He was good at golf, I wasn't. Listen, if we preach the gospel, God's people will come out of the woodwork. And the unconverted will just be mad. Welcome back. Thanks. Thank you. Um, yeah, I was just going to say, and when you mentioned, you know, Ryan Hovind and some of our brothers in Christ, it's, uh, you know, it's encouraging that... Uh, you know, God uses the, the body of Christ and all these different, you know, members to, to strengthen us that we can, that we can do his, uh, his will together. And uh, I was also thinking, you know, how much we need prayer, because I was reading at the end of Romans here, how uh, it says, uh, 
Oh, he wanted them to strive with him. I can't quite see the exact quote for the uh, in prayer for the uh, work of the gospel. And you know, I was remembering. Uh, if I'll give a story because uh, over at uh, at uh, Israel, it's uh, illegal to share the gospel. And I remembered, you know, how much I need God's help to share the gospel because, man, at the uh, end of the day, you know, touring, I was just kind of, uh, you know, I don't. Lord, help me share the gospel. Give me this boldness, because otherwise I just would have, you know, sat at home, done touring and just not shared it. And, uh, and you know, with prayer, I, I asked, uh, I actually ran into one guy one night. His name was Kirk, and uh, he just said, he prayed for me. That was the first guy I ran into. I, he's a believer in Christ, encouraged that I was out there sharing it, even though it's, you know, against the uh, authorities, but not, of course, against God's. He commands us to share the gospel. Um, and so he prayed for me that night, and it was just, you know, I could just, the next, the people I talked to that night, one in particular, just really accepted it, and God just really worked through me, you know, that how, I just wanted to say how powerful God's, or prayer is to God, how important that is, because. Yeah, we should pray that the gospel goes out with power and without compromise. Let's see if we can get verse 40 done here. Okay, so they became apostate. So what happened? They, the fathers saying to Aaron, make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out from the land of Egypt, we don't know what's become of him. Now I preached on this, I think the last, recently. Mo, they knew where Moses was. He was on Sinai. And they wanted him there. If you read the story, when the Ten Words came, Ten Commandments, they said, oh no, this is too much. We're full of fear and trembling. God is too awesome. We can't take it. And so they said, Moses, you go and talk to God and we'll listen to you. Remember that? Oh, yeah. And so he did. But while he was up there, they couldn't see Moses. Remember that um, video I showed? I think it was the last week. Well, we can't see Moses. What happened to him? We want something more tangible. How can we believe those words we heard from God? And so they made the golden calf. Make us gods. As long as you got the mic, Eric. Exodus 32, 1. Do you have a mic too? John 5, 45, 46. John 5, 45, 46. Exodus 32, 1. It says, When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. In Hebrews and in 1 Corinthians 10, we have preaching based on this incident. And the application is Jesus bodily ascended into heaven where he sits at the right hand of God. And he ever lives to make intercession for us. The danger is that we are become like the Israelites. This Jesus, we don't know what's become of him. We don't see Jesus. Yeah, we read stories about him, but we don't see him. And the challenge in Hebrews in Peter is to believe on him whom we have not seen. Are you going to believe the words of God while Jesus is physically in heaven? Are you going to obey the words of God? Or are you going to say, this Jesus is in heaven, we don't see him. Make us something. In that video that we saw, I claim that that's what evangelicalism is doing. 
We can't believe in Jesus we can't see. We want to be like the Catholics. Crucifixes. Icons. Prayer labyrinth. Give us something tangible. It's too hard to believe the words of God. Give us something that makes us feel close. I remember about 15 years ago, a young lady was coming and hearing the gospel. And she left, which is okay. People need to find where they want to hear the word taught. But she went over to a Messianic congregation, which was, was okay, that's what happened. Well, she came back and said to me, I want to tell you why I'm going there. Because they have prayer shawls. Okay, the shawl. And when I go there, I get the prayer shawl and I put it over me and then I feel close to God. Now, that's not legitimate. I can't agree with that. You can't buy close to God. I don't know what it was like in Israel. When I was there, it was $1, $1, $1, Now it's probably $5, I don't know. <laughs> $1, everywhere you went, a ring in your ears. $1, $1. You could buy something that would be a holy object. But this prayer shawl, and so that's the same thing. Okay? Being under a shawl might make you feel better but it's an indication of apostasy because you won't believe Jesus Christ who you can't see same issue see has anybody seen that movie that's coming out it's about the boyhood life of Jesus yeah what's it called young messiah well, it's coming out. Well, this comes from Gnostic Gospels that are written yeah, hundreds of years later. Yeah, the infancy later. gospel. I- exactly right. It'd be like someone saying that they knew George Washington, who wrote 400 years later. Well, would you give any credence to that? Well, that's what people are doing now with this movie. This is false information about Jesus. So they're doing the same thing you're talking about, Bob. They're supplanting inspiration found in Scripture with the imagination of these yeah, false writers. when I saw the trailer, shows him with his dove flying. Well, that's out of the infancy gospel. This is when Jesus was a lad, he had a piece of clay molded into a bird and it turned into a real bird. It's not true. Don't, don't believe it. See, people want something they can buy. They want to feel closer to God rather than to draw near to God. A theme in Hebrews draw near to God. We draw near through the blood of Jesus. Do we see it? No. Remember in that video I mentioned transubstantiation? Trying to create tangibility. We want something like that. So when Moses was out of sight, their faith failed. Keep using your mic there. Thank you. John 6, 31 to 36. Same issue. Tangibility. John 6, 31 and 36? 30, all the way through. Okay, it says, um, this is John 6, 31. It says, our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you bread from heaven, but my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Verse 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. Yeah. People who really saw Jesus did not believe. People today say, well, if we could really see Jesus. So what do we have? People writing books who claim they went to heaven. 
We won't believe what the Bible says about heaven. But if somebody, so I went there, I saw all these things. Well, we'll believe that. Well, the bread of life came down out of heaven. We have the apostles' testimony about that in John 6. Their fathers rebelled against Moses. Now they rebel against Jesus. Brian, Numbers 14, 2 through 4. All the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron, and the whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in the wilderness? Keep reading. Three through four. Oh, you want me to keep going? Why is, why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become plunder. Would it not be better for us to return to Egypt? So they said to one another, Let us appoint a leader and return to Egypt. That's it. They grumbled. Here's what's interesting. The term grumbled from the Septuagint, the Greek Old Testament often quoted by the New Testament writers, is also used in John 6, 42, 43. They were saying, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, father and mother we know how does he say I've come down out of heaven Jesus answered and said to them do not grumble same word grumble your fathers grumble you grumble you hear agnostics and atheists say oh I won't believe the gospel why because if God can't think of something better than killing his own son, he's not trying very hard. Have you heard that? I have. That's what they say. And so they come up with Rob Bell. Love wins. Everybody goes to heaven. We don't need a blood atonement. We ran out of time. Uh, Thank you. Again, I apologize. I If there's anything I can do to get his voice going, I promise you I will do it. I've even been playing the flute. (laughs) I went to the voice doctor. I said, do that all day. (laughs) That's the closest I'm going to get to being a musician. Bottom line, let's believe what God said about his son, Jesus, and preach it. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Help us to always believe and obey you. Help us, Lord, in Jesus' holy name. Amen. God bless you. Go in peace. Well, thank you.